You are listening to the Discovery City Church Sermon Podcast. To learn more about us, including our location and service times, please visit us at discoverycitychurch.com. We hope this sermon will encourage and build your faith as you pursue God, community, and influence within your world. Now, the message from our lead pastor, Caleb York. So we've been saying the last few weeks that faith has a starting point. And we learned last week that even the story of faith had a starting point. But for every single one of us, there has been a time where we didn't know what to believe. We were children, we were young, we were kids, and there was a time we didn't even think about believing anything. And then someone came along and said, believe this. Believe this. Maybe it was a parent. And they took you to church or they took you to the temple. And before you knew it, you believed. I believe in Santa Claus. I believe in the Easter Bunny and Explosion. I believe in Jesus. And even though God is good, what happened? Life happens. We go off to high school and that person says, hey, you know what? I don't believe this whole Bible thing. And so you begin to wonder to yourself, You know, I guess it is kind of weird now that you say that. We go off to college and that professor stands up and says, listen, God doesn't exist. And the reason I know why is because God and science, they don't work together. They don't mix. And so for that very reason, God doesn't exist. And so you began to drift a little bit more. And then you became an adult and you discovered that gap between what you were taught as a child and what you experienced as an adult. And in this series, we've been asking the question, what would it look like if we started over? What would it look like if we had an adult starting point to our story of faith? What would that look like to start over again? What if we asked the fundamental fundamental questions over again and had adult answers? And that's what we've been doing. And so today, we're going to talk about the role of rules. The role of rules. If you open up your service guide, that's our first note this morning. The role of rules. You know, we look at all three major faith traditions— Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And all three, guess what? They all three uh, have a list of rules. If we look at every major religion in general in this world, all of them have a list or a book of rules. And the one thing that I've seen that they all have in common is that they believe there is a rule maker. And that person is not us. No matter how much we want it to be, we all believe there's a rule maker. There's someone who's making these rules. And so I wanted to show you a slide. I've got this slide up here. We see with Islam. Islam has their five pillars of Islam. That's what they turn to. That's their list of laws. We, for the Judaism, we have the Ten Commandments. As Christians, we believe that Jesus came and he gave the Sermon on the Mount, which redefined the rules completely. And it redefined what we are supposed to be about and what, how, what we, how we were supposed to live today. But as you get into the Christian faith, it begins to get a little bit confusing. 
Because you actually see that there's two different branches. We have the Catholicism branch, and we have the Protestant branch. And for me, growing up in church, if you were like me, it was a little bit confusing. Because you have the Presbyterian church, which I kind of felt had too many rules. And then you have the Methodist church, which I didn't feel had enough rules. And then you have the Baptist, and you have this view, and you have that view. All these views out there, all these different churches. And so it was a little bit confusing for me growing up. Even though I went to church, even though I grew up in church, I still didn't understand it. And maybe many of you, you were like me. You were confused. What were all these rules about? Why? Like, why all the rules? And the reason we need to talk about this today is the same reason why many walked away. And maybe you're here today, and there was a time that you walked away because you couldn't figure out the connection between the rules and the relationship with God. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about. And that brings me to my next note that we have in our service guide. Rules always assume a relationship. Rules always assume a relationship. Wherever there are rules, that you are accountable to a relationship. And this can be hard for many of us to understand. It's be hard to wrap our brain around this. So I want to give you some categories this morning. Some categories that I think will help us kind of understand it a little bit better. And the first category I have is this. The first category I have is the family model. The family model. The next category I have is the club model. These two models right here I think are a good way for us to understand maybe your experiences that you've had in church or maybe the one you're having right now, we have some differences. In the family model, you're born into a family. And as you get older as a child, your parents begin to give you rules. They begin to instill these rules into you. These rules don't make you a part of the family. They're because you're already in the family. And if you want to survive in the family, you follow these rules. That's why they're there. The interesting thing about the family model is this. The parents are the ones who make the rules for their own kids. Now, I've been to some churches. I've been to some stores where there's been times where I've seen some kids. And obviously, they're not being disciplined. I've seen kids actually slap their mom in the face. I've seen a kid spit in his parents' face before. And I'm just like, there's a part of me, there's an instinct in me that says, just, I just want to walk and be like, excuse me, ma'am. Would you care if I spent about five seconds with your child? And I promise you, they'll never do that again. But I don't do that. Why? Because they're not my kid. They're not my kid. You're never going to hear me call up you one night and say, hey, did you make sure Susie did her homework and brushed her teeth before she went to bed? No, because if I do that, you're going to go, who do you think you are? I'm the mom. I'm the dad. I'm the one who, who takes care of them. They're my responsibility. And that's how the family model works. The parents make the rules for their own kids. But you don't have to keep the rules in order to be in the family. That's not how it works. You're already a part of the family and the rules come later. In the club model, if you've experienced this before, you sign a contract. Anybody, anybody ever been part of a club? I can say that, hey, I've been one of those people who signed up for a fitness club before and regretted it later. But in the club model, you sign up, you're a part of this club, and they say, hey, if you do this, you're in. And if you don't do this, you're out. 
you're out. That's it. That's the club model. Maybe you've experienced the employee model where, hey, if you do what we tell you to do, you get to keep working and keep having a job. And if you don't, you're fired. You're out of here. Another category I'd give you is this, the neighborhood association model. Now, can I say this? This is a new one for me because I live in one of these, all right? I'm a part of one of these, and it's been a learning experience because you really have no idea where you stand in this thing. You don't really know if you're in or you're out, and, and so if you don't do certain things, occasionally you'll get a nasty letter from them is what'll happen. I haven't had it happen yet, but I'm working really hard to make sure that never happens. But I've been warned by neighbors. You don't do what they want you to do. You get a nasty letter in your mailbox. And they really can't kick you out, but they can tell you when there's something that you're doing that they don't like what you're doing. And so many of us, we've been to a church like that before, haven't we? where they have that kind of mindset, they have that kind of model. And so when we see these kind of things, it can be really confusing because we see so many times in people's lives and even in our own lives where we try to take these models and we try to put them on our faith, which confuses us. Some of you, you grew up in a church that taught it's the family model. You're in God's family and now he's given you rules, but you were really treated by the church like it's, the neighborhood association model. Hey, we're not happy that you didn't do what we told you to do, and so we're going to treat you bad, and we're going to shun you. Ever been to one of those churches before? Maybe you were taught the club model. You do all this stuff, and you keep all these rules, and then you're in the church. But if you stop, if you stop doing them, we're going to kick you out. We're going to kick you out of the church. You're going to be out of here. It can be really confusing when we try and take the role, of, the, the role of rules and try to specify it according to the world standards. It just messes everything up. The key here is rules always assume a relationship. Rules always assume a relationship. Now, I've thrown out a lot of these different options to you, and some of you are probably thinking in your mind. Some of you are probably thinking, you know, theologically, like, uh, you know, I know it's the family model because once you're part of God's family, like you're, you're in his family, and then he has rules for you. Some of you, you're thinking more emotionally because you've been part of that church before where they sort of treated you a little bit differently. And because you didn't do what they wanted you to do, they tried to kick you out because you wouldn't keep their rules. And so we're all sort of confused about the rules today. And so today... A way to kind of combat this, a way to kind of straighten this out is we're going to go back to the original rules. We're going to go back to the oldest set of rules in history, which all three major faith traditions in our world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all have this set of rules in their literature. And the set of rules that I'm talking about is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is the oldest set of rules that we have in history. The Ten Commandments were given in 1447 B.C. by God to Moses. And what's interesting about the Ten Commandments is that it's the most, uh, what's interesting about the Ten Commandments is that most people only really know about two of them. If you were asked someone, hey, can you tell me the whole Ten Commandments? Most people, they, they get the important ones. They remember the big ones like, hey, thou shalt not murder don't kill anybody. They're like, yeah, don't, don't murder. Like, that's bad. We don't want to be murdered. I don't want anybody trying to murder me. We remember that one. Not good. And then they always remember, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
because that's bad. Don't do that. Don't commit adultery. But after that, it gets a little fuzzy. After that, people get a little bit, you know, confused about what there is. Another thing that I've asked many people, where is the Ten Commandments in the Bible? Many can't tell you where it's at in the Bible. They have no clue. And so today, we're going to look at that. And so today, we're going to be, open up your Bibles to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. Remember that. If, if some of you are going, man, I don't know where it's at either. Exodus chapter 20. That's where we're going to begin with the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments and look at the role of rules. But to kind of connect this to last week, we saw last week that we talked about Abraham. And God spoke to Abraham. And he says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. And we see that after God has said this to Abraham, years go by and still he has no kids. He has no descendants. He has no offspring, nothing. And Abraham begins to freak out and say, God, I thought you were going to make me the leader of a great nation, but I've got no kids. On top of Abraham freaking out, we see Sarah, his wife, she begins to freak out. And I kind of can see her personality a little bit in this story because we see she kind of goes into hyper like problem solver mode. And she's like, Abraham, I came up with this plan. I've got this big plan. I've got this handmaiden. And you can go in and sleep with her and have a child with her. And through her, you'll have your descendants. And through her, we'll, meet, we'll create this nation. She's like, I, I, it's a great idea. When truthfully, she had no idea what she was talking about. I think the thing that really catches me in the story is this. Abraham, <clears throat> who's supposed to be the leader of the new nation, the, this great nation that's to come, instead of being a leader and saying, no, we're going to follow God, what does he do? He becomes a follower and he says, that sounds like a great plan. And he goes along with it. And we see her handmaiden, her name's Hagar. She becomes pregnant and gives birth to Ishmael. But we also see not long after that, that God fulfills his promise. And we see that Sarah, in her old age, becomes pregnant. And she gives birth to Isaac. Now Ishmael, today, Islam considers Ishmael to be the son of blessing. They look to him as the connection to Father Abraham. Christianity and Judaism, we look to Isaac as the son of blessing. Everything we knew about, about Ishmael being the son of blessing really comes from the teaching of Muhammad, who taught this 600 years after Jesus. He's the one that makes the connection between Ishmael and the entire Arab nation. He's the one that makes that connection. But if we look on the other side, we see Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And God uses Jacob in a huge way. And through Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. And one of these sons is named Joseph. And Joseph, as the story tells us, is completely hated by his brothers. Completely hated. We actually see in the story, it actually kind of gives us the reasons why his brothers really don't like him. Gives us many reasons. One of them we see is that Joseph is known as his dad's favorite. How would you like to be that child? Man, I, to, to, to actually know, hey, that's the one that dad really likes more than me. 
the feelings and emotions that can swell up in you. That's what these other brothers feel towards Joseph. Dad, he's dad's favorite. We even see Jacob, his father, he gives Joseph a coat of many colors. And for us nowadays, that doesn't mean anything. We can get a coat of many colors any day we want. But back then, colors was a commodity. It was, it, was, it was something that wasn't very common. And so that coat probably had a lot of value to it. And he gives it to Joseph. And Joseph, being proud of the gift that his dad gave him, he wears it around everywhere. And the brothers have had enough. They look at him and say, man, look how prideful he is. We need to knock him down a few levels. They even get to the point where they hate him so much that they want to kill him. And they make a plan to kill him. But before they could put the plan into action, they come to a realization, we can't kill him. We can't do it. He's our brother. We can't kill him. But we can sell him into slavery. We can make some money off of him. They're so mad at him. They're so angry at him. They hate him so much that they're willing to sell him. Now, I've got to say this. I have some brothers. And... um, I've been pretty mad at them before. I've had some times. I've been tempted. I don't think I'd ever sell them into slavery. I don't think I'd even, I'd even murder them. But I don't, I don't think I could sell them into slavery, at least not yet. We're, we're getting to that point. We're working up with that as we get older. But it says that they hate them so much. They sell them off into slavery. And I'm not going to go through the whole story today because you can read it at home. It's a great story if you've never read it before. But we see, if we fast forward, we see that Joseph is taken to Egypt. And in Egypt, he's there and he begins to work as a slave. And we see while he's there for the next 20 to 30 years, God begins to put a plan into motion in his life. Where he begins to work through the ranks to the point where he's the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. And we see that he's kind of like the prime minister in Egypt. He has, he has an important title. He is an important person. And while he's there, something happens. We see a famine takes place in the region, not only in Egypt, but in his hometown, which is hundreds of miles away from Egypt. And Jacob one day looks at his sons, the sons that he has left, And he says, boys, if we don't do something about this, if we don't go find some food, we are going to starve to death, you and our families. We're going to starve to death. And so they catch word that in Egypt, they have an abundance of food. And so he says, boys, head to Egypt. Go to Egypt. Here's all the wealth that we have. Go buy some food so we don't starve to death. And we see as they head to Egypt, Joseph sees them. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. It's been 20, 30 years since they've seen him. He looks completely different. And we see through this story that Joseph could have enacted his revenge. Oh man, he so could have. He had the power to. He could have had every single one of his brothers executed. He could have put them into slavery. He had the power, but he doesn't do that. He shows mercy on them. And we see through this story that he eventually tells his brothers, go get my father. Go get my brother, bring them here, bring your families here because here you're gonna be taken care of. Here we're gonna, you're gonna live here with me and you're gonna be taken care of the rest of your life. And we see that's exactly what happens. They live there, they have their happily ever after. But generations pass. Generations pass, years pass. Joseph dies. The Pharaoh who was so good to Joseph, he dies. 
And we get to a point where there's a Pharaoh who knows nothing of Joseph. He knows nothing of their history. He just knows that, hey, these Israelites are here in our land, and man, they have so many in their population, they're almost as big as our population is. They're, they're rivaling our population. And so worried that they would try to overthrow the Pharaoh. One of his advisors say, hey, why don't we, why don't we make them our slaves? Why don't we use our power while we still have it now and turn them into our slaves? And that's exactly what they do. And right there for 400 years, Israel becomes a slave nation in Egypt. Could you imagine the fathers as they would come home from their slave labor and they would sit their kids down around them, their 10 kids, because it shows that The children of Israel here, the Israelites, their population was growing so quickly. I imagine they had a lot of kids in just one family. And a father would sit down with his 10 children and begin to tell them about Abraham and how Abraham was promised by God that their descendants would be a great nation. And that one kid who would say, but dad, we're slaves. You say we're going to be a great nation, but we're slaves. How that father would take them outside and show them the night sky and tell them just like God told Abraham, look at all these stars. Your descendants, my kids, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. And that kid would go, but dad, what are you talking about? How? We are slaves. How is this going to happen? You know, I think about that generation. I think about those kids that were part of that time how they experienced conflict between what they were taught as a child and what they were experiencing in life. Does that sound familiar? Same thing happens to us. To some of you today, there's a conflict there between what you were taught and what you're going through. We see long story short, a man named Moses comes along. And he goes to the Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Let them go. And the Pharaoh, what does he say? No, I ain't doing it. Your people are the economic machine behind our country. I cannot let them go. They have got to stay here. They have got to keep working. And so we see because of that, God puts 10 plagues over the land of Egypt. And eventually we see Moses leads the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And he brings them to the place. He brings the people to Mount Sinai. And once they get there, he goes up on the mountain. And I I don't know if you can imagine with me what these people are thinking right here. These people that, that Moses is leading has known nothing but slavery. Their people have been in slavery for 400 years. They know nothing else. Could you imagine what was running through their mind as they go to this mountain and God gives them, the nation of Israel, their first set of laws? Because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what's going on. If we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 is where we're going to begin reading. Exodus 21 says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. To which they would say, really? And God would say, yes, I'm the Lord your God. Well, God, if you're really our God, then that means we're your people. God would say, you got it. You're my people and I'm your God. And they would say, well, then when did that happen? 
Because we've been in slavery for 400 years. And where were you during that? Why didn't we hear from you? You didn't show up at that time. And God would say, listen. I'll explain to you what happened. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. In other words, I am the Lord your God. I've done something for you. You've done nothing for me. I've done something for you. I delivered you when everyone else said there is no way this is going to happen. There is no way we're getting out of this. I was the one that made that happen. I'm the one that did that. And they would say, all right, God, fine. You did that. You were the one that made that happen. But we've got a new problem. We've been in slavery for all these years. We don't know anything else. We don't know what it's like to be free. We don't know what we're supposed to do with our lives now. We don't know where we're supposed to go. We don't even know how to live the right way or to not do the wrong way. We have no idea what you consider to be right and wrong. So God says, guess what? I'm about to take care of that. I'm about to give you what I want you to do and how I want you to live. But before I do that, I want you to know something. And that's what he's saying in this first verse right here. You are mine and I am yours. I'm the Lord, your God. He lays that out first thing to them. Before he even jumps into rules, before he jumps into laws, he says that. Before we read any more, we really need to go back a few weeks because something really interesting happens before they leave Egypt that we need to know about. After the 10 plug, plagues and before they leave Egypt, Egypt's economy is completely decimated. Thousands of Egyptians have been killed through the, through the plagues. And God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, trust me. Trust me. And Moses is like, of course, God, we, I trust you. You have made all this happen. You brought these plagues down on the Egyptians. You are making this thing happen. Of course, I trust you. God says, okay, if you trust me, this is what I want you to do tonight. Tonight, I want you to slaughter a sheep. Okay, God, yeah, we can do that. We can slaughter that sheep. This wasn't uncommon for them, for, for them to slaughter a sheep. They were, very, they were very familiar with altar worship. They were very familiar with altar sacrifices. Okay, yeah, we can slaughter a sheep. And then I want you to bring your families together and have a big dinner together. Yeah, we can do that. We do that all the time. That's easy. And then I want you to take the blood of that sheep, and I want you to paint every doorframe of the Israelite homes. That's kind of weird. I mean, we've slaughtered sheep before, and we've had big dinners, but we've never painted our door frames before. This, this is a little unusual, God. Moses, do you trust me? Yeah, I, I trust you, God. Yeah, we'll do this. We'll do this. And so we see that's what they do. They paint the door frames of their houses in blood. And they have a big dinner. And they even pack their bags and get ready because God said the day before, tomorrow, guess what? You're going to be free. And so they do this. And we see that God sends an angel of death upon Egypt. And as the angel of death goes through Egypt, any house that had that blood on the door frames, it passed over. But any home that didn't, the angel of death would enter. And we see through the story that of the houses that didn't have that blood painted on there, 
the firstborn of every one of those homes died that night. We see the next day they wake up. Israelites, has their, they have their bags packed and they leave the land. To this very day, the Jewish people actually celebrate Passover. Not to celebrate God killing all those people. Not to celebrate the new rules that they got and the new laws, but to remind them to trust God. Three weeks later, they show up at Mount Sinai. And they're at the foot of the mountain. And God says, I'm going to give you some laws. But don't forget, don't forget the most important thing. I am the Lord, your God, and you are my people. I delivered you from slavery. I made all this happen. And now that you get that, I'm going to give you something so you know how to get along best together. They're called my commandments, and here's the first one. And he doesn't start out with, thou shalt not. He doesn't start out with that. He says this in verse 3. What does he say? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before you. I want you to understand something about the Ten Commandments today. And this is our next note that I have for you in the service guide. The Ten Commandments were a confirmation of, not a condition of, Israel's relationship with God. It was confirmation. He didn't give the Ten Commandments in order to say, hey, if you keep all these, then you'll have a relationship with me. But if you only keep eight out of the ten, you know what? You're out. You're done. I'll boot you out of the group. You're out of the club. You're out of luck. You don't measure up. You can't have a relationship with me. That's not why he gave them. We see before Jesus, in the beginning, God said, you are my people. You haven't done a thing for me. And now that you get that, now that you understand in order to live together in the best possible way, under my authority, I'm giving you these commandments. If you've ever read the Old Testament, one thing I find that's interesting about about the Old Testament is in Genesis, I love how it kind of progresses through that book. We have these characters, and I'm a big, can I say this? I'm a big superhero fan, so anytime you got like a main character who has this epic story behind him, I'm all over it. I love it. I love comic book characters. I love movies. I love that kind of progression, and that's how Genesis kind of is. You have these characters, and they're going through these amazing experiences in their life, and then you go to Exodus, and you see the children of Israel, and you see them freed from slavery, and you see them go through the desert and the wilderness, and their story continues on. But as you get to like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it gets a little repetitive. You're kind of like, okay, okay get, keep the adventure rolling. And, he, and Moses is kind of just repeating and repeating some things. And then you get to the book of the prophets. And when you get to the book of the prophets, it just seems like the prophets are just like mad all the time. They're mad at the people. Sure, they have some neat things where the prophets see some amazing things. They have these visions, and they're like, they're super cool. But one thing I want you to understand about the prophets, one thing that we need to understand when it comes to the prophets is that they were evidence that God wasn't going to give up on his people, even when they broke his law. That's why they were there. They were proof that God's not going to give up, which is good news for us today because the prophets were God's way of saying this. For you parents out there, are you ready for this? This was God's way of saying, one, 
Don't you do that. Don't make me get to three or you're going to get a timeout. Two. Oh, don't, mm, don't make me do it. Three. All right, you got a timeout. That was God right there doing that for his children. That was God right there disciplining his kids. We even see Israel at one point has a 70-year timeout. I mean, that's, that's some major discipline right there. That's a major timeout. They were God's way of saying, you know what? You'd better listen. But I'm not giving up on you because you're my people. And that brings me to our next note. With God, relationship precedes rules. With God, relationship precedes rules. And God opts for the family model over the club model. With God, relationships precedes rules, but God opts for the family model over the club model. God, with God, the relationship comes before the rules. That's how he treated Israel. That's how he treated Abraham. And the question today for you that you have to answer is, is this how he treats you? Is this how he treats you? Do you think that he treats you that same way? What we're about to find out is that the rules are confirmation of, not a condition of a relationship with God. It's a confirmation. A lot of us have heard the Ten Commandments in the past and thought, there's no way I can do all these. There's no way that I can live up to that. I might as well not even try. I can't have a relationship with God, but with God, the relationship comes before the rules. If that's true today, that statement right there, that confirmation, that's staggering. Because what it's saying, what that's saying to us is that God is like a good parent who gives the rules to his own kids. God gives chance after chance after chance to Israel and to Abraham. And he only disciplines his own kids. He only disciplines the ones that he loves. The ones that are his very own. Not to pay them back for what they've done, but to bring them back to him. For some of you, you might be a Christian here today, but you thought that if you do bad, that God's out to get you. He's out to squash you. And the truth is, that's not it. That's not what he's doing. The truth is, it's in order to bring you back to him. That's why he disciplines you. He wants to bring you back to him. You viewed it wrong all these years, and instead of running to God because of that viewpoint, because of that mindset, you've been running away from him instead. Some of you, you might even argue, well, maybe God has his favorites. He shows favoritism towards other people. You know, God, you know, God looked at Abraham and Israel, and those are God's favorites. Like God was like, hey, I've got to choose someone. And so, hey, Israel, I choose you. You're my favorite. I love you more than everybody else. Those Americans that are going to come into the future, they don't stand a chance. You know, they can do this on their own. They can try to be good enough, and they can take care of this. But I love you. No, he doesn't do that. That's not what God does. He doesn't play favorites. That's not the way God was, and that's not the way he is. When God made the promise with Abraham, when God made the covenant with Israel, it becomes clear as you study it that it's never been about Israel. It's never been about Abraham. It's always been about all mankind. 
How do we know that? Because we looked at it last week. Genesis 18, 18 says this. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. What does it say? All nations. It doesn't say, hey, not just the nation that you're about to become, Abraham. Not just the nation of Israel. All nations. Isaiah even says it a little bit differently. Isaiah 49.6 says this. I will make you as a light for the nations. You're going to be a spotlight for them. So that they can find their way. It keeps going. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Not to the end of the continent. To the end of the earth. In other words, Israel, as much as I love you, it's bigger than you. It's about the whole world. And so we're not surprised that 1,500 years later, Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins to do miracles and he begins to heal people and he begins to turn nature upside down. And with this storm and the wind that's happening outside, he could with just his words say, peace, be still, and it would stop. And before he says, hey, you've got to do this. Before you've got to do that, he says, trust me. He doesn't start with the rules. He says, trust me. You want to know why? Because Jesus knew the promise to Abraham. And the promise to Israel is a promise to all. It begins through faith. And it's extended to the whole world. Because of what Jesus did. We even see John says this later. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, what is it, club members? What does it say? Associates of God? No. Children. Children of God. To those who do what I tell them to do. For those who listen to my rules. No, what does it say? To those who believe in his name. Then anything that Jesus requires of you and of me, all those rules that we were so confused about are nothing more than evidence of his love for us. The reason why? Because we have a pre-established relationship. He didn't give us the rules to push us away. They weren't meant to get us back or to hurt us. The rules were given to you because you became a part of his family. And because he created life, he knows how life is going to work the best way. He knows the key to all this, how we get along best with others and with him. And so, the rules were never meant to be that way. They were ne never meant to be so you can become a part of his family. They're just confirmation. They're confirmation that you're already in, that you're already a part. So today, how do you become a part of his family? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. 
How do we become a part of his family? The Bible says it clearly in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My question for you is simple. Are you a part of the family of God? Are you a part of the family of God? Because if you're part of the family of God, the rules are for you. They're for you. You're already in. But if you're not today, you don't have to try and keep them all to get into the family. What you need to do is admit, God, I'm a sinner and I'm lost. We see that when sin, sin entered the world, it severed that relationship between man and God. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes and he repairs that. He fixes that relationship. But all we have to do is admit. The Bible's clear. Faith is given to those who would believe in his name. You've got to say, God, I know that I've sinned. I've failed. I don't meet up to your standards. I need you to save me. I need you to be the Lord of my life. And once you're saved, you're in the family. It's not, hey, you're in the family if you do all these rules, and if you don't, you're out. You're out of luck, buddy. You're out of the family. We kick you out of the club. No, it doesn't work like that. The role of rules has always been a confirmation of our relationship with God. It's never been a condition of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I know in this room today that we have many that know Christ. And so today, Lord, this is a reminder for us. This is a reminder that we need to trust you. Sometimes we don't fully understand. Sometimes you call us to do things we've never done before. And you just want us to trust you. I pray that would be every one of our hearts this, this morning. God, I trust you. Whatever you're calling me to do, whatever you want me to do, I trust you. God, that as your children, we wouldn't look at your rules and say, God, you're just trying to keep your thumb on us. God, you're trying to hold us back. God, you're trying to keep us from doing what we want to do. And the truth is, God, you give us those rules because you love us and you want to protect us. It's not to hurt us. It's not to get us back. It's because you love us. Lord, this morning, if there's anybody here that might be confused about that, that this would straighten this up for them, that they would spend time with you, they would talk to you and say, God, I know now it's the family model. I'm in the family. And once you're family, you're family. There's nothing that can change that. God, I pray that it's in all of our hearts this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've blessed this great nation, how you used Abraham, and you used Isaac, and you used Jacob, and you used Joseph. Joseph. 
and you used Moses. God, the examples that they are in our lives that we can look back and see men that obviously were faulted, but they trusted you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Discovery City Church podcast. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to help us continue to help others, you can give online at discoverycitychurch.com slash give.